Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt. Nothing's changed. The circus moves on, rinse and repeat. We have an opportunity to become Europe's Silicon Valley. We can perhaps be a broker of some sort with Ukraine. We expect inflation to come off quite rapidly in the rest of this year. Obviously, we want to see that happen. What we now need is a period of stable, quiet, serious government. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. I don't want to say that, like, I was hoping that we wouldn't have to be still talking about strikes now that it's July, but here we are, and there are yet more strikes to look forward to, quote-unquote, this week. So we've got the Train Drivers Union ass left. They're starting a ban on overtime from today uh, until the end of Saturday at 16 rail operators around the UK, part of their long-running dispute over pay and conditions. Uh, That's not expected to affect train services in London, uh, but there will be disruption to other passenger services around the country, so that'll be back on the agenda. We've also got teachers set to walk out from the National Education Union uh, in England on Wednesday and Friday of this year as well, giving Labour a chance to put forward one of their education policies over the weekend that they try to give a retention bonus to teachers or earlier on in their career to try to stop them leaving the profession. Uh, this, of course, pays into the broader debates around pay for public sector, but an interesting to see Labour putting a, a marker in the ground over that subject anyway. Yes, and a new uh, group of Conservative MPs has launched. Newly Conservative or New Conservatives? New, new Conservatives. New <laughs> They've conservatives. been in for 30 be, years. Yeah. How can they be new? <laughs> to be, not to be confused with the rest of the Conservatives who have been around, as Lizzie points out, for a while. Yes, indeed. Well, there are 25 of them and they are Red Wall MPs uh, and they're pushing the party to take a hard line on immigration. Now, remember that immigration reached 606,000 net Uh, in the latest figures. They would like to cut that by two-thirds. They say the current level of immigration is, quote, having destabilising economic and cultural consequences. Remember, last week, campaigners uh, uh, won a court of appeal challenge over the government's Rwanda deportation scheme. That was a big blow uh, to the government. This group, led by the party's outspoken Deputy Chairman Lee Anderson, is pushing Sunak, Sunak to go further. Yeah, you've also got Tom Hunt in there. He's usually loyal to Rishi Sunak, but I guess that loyalty goes out the window when you're battling to save your seat. And of course, immigration's a top issue on the doorstep in the Red Wall, where he's an MP. Well, is this, do you think, a question of disloyalty, or is it just simply a question of sort of trying to reorientate the party before the election? I think it's an issue that definitely has to be, uh, they have to be aware of if they want to keep those red wall seats. Yeah, I think it's something that a lot of Conservative MPs feel very strongly about, and particularly in the red wall, they know that their voters do um, as well. But uh, let's be honest, it is incredibly complicated. The 600,000 includes um, students, some people think it shouldn't. And it's been boosted in the last year by people coming from Ukraine and from Hong Kong. And not many people would argue uh, that particularly, or that either of those groups really shouldn't have, have, have been welcomed into mm. the country. So it, it, it is a very tricky issue for and the Tories. Also, to try to close temporary schemes to grant workers in social care 
um, access to the UK labour market also seems counterintuitive given the challenges from, you know, we heard this on, on Friday's episode of the show as well, discussing the challenges facing the NHS workforce in the future as well. There's a huge shortage of people. We, we need more people to work in those industries. Exactly. And that's got consequences from a health and social care perspective, but also economically, because if you can't get the staff, you're going to have to pay them more. And that's only going to boost inflation. Yeah, of course, on Friday, the government launched its NHS workforce plan, which was all about getting uh, more Brits into the NHS over the long term. But you can't train doctors this year or next year. It takes a very long time. And in the meantime, we have lots of vacancies, 110,000 vacancies in the NHS. And how do you fill them without bringing in people from abroad? It's very tricky. Yeah, very tricky indeed. Just one of the many challenges facing the government three weeks from the Parliament's summer recess, which happens to fall on the same day as three by-elections, triggered by the resignation of Tory MPs. A raft of other political landmines mean that it's set to be an awkward three-week political test for the Prime Minister. To bring us what we're calling the Biggs picture uh, is our Stuart Biggs, our UK government editor, uh, with us in studio. Stu just died is inside, it? by the way. <laughs> I think that joke works better visually, doesn't it? B-I-double-G, yeah. Not okay, right. It, it didn't work. We won't say it again. Um, how, Stuart, what, how are Tory chances looking for those three by-elections? It's not easy to win a by-election when you're in government. That's right. It's always a challenge. And I think these three in particular are... Um, I get to prove a challenge for Rishi Sunak. It's it's hard to read, actually. It's, it's interesting because if you look at Us, Uxbridge in northwest London and you go back, say, six months and Boris Johnson's popularity is at, at, at its nadir, as it were, and, and everything is pointing Labour's way there. And then suddenly you remove Johnson from the picture you know, he did, he decided he didn't want to face the risk of a, of going to the, facing the electorate um, over Partygate, and so now you've got a new candidate in there. It's going to be much more local. Uh, the outcome, uh, much more local issues, will come to the fore because Johnson's not involved. So that's suddenly harder to read. And then you go to uh, Selby. It's a huge Tory majority there. But then if you're looking at the kind of swings that Labour's been getting and, and certainly the state of national polls, you know, Labour will feel as though they're in with a shout there. And the other one, of course, in uh, in southwest England, um, in Froome, uh, the, it's, it's, it bears a lot of similarities to what's happened in uh, Tiverton last year when uh, an MP sort of gets forced out slash steps down in, 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 in controversial circumstances and the Liberal Democrats who are always um, strong beneath the surface in, in southwest England, you know, they took it last year in, in, in Tiverton and, and they looked like they could take uh, Froome this time. Yeah, they're three very, very different by-elections, aren't they? Actually, from a kind of cephalogical point of view, it's a really oh, fascinating... Cephalogy alert. <laughs> it's a really fascinating test, isn't it? They're three uh, really quite sort of disparate races. In in the London one, do you think the... Uh, this sounds a bit kind of London nerdy, but do you think the expansion of EULAs, the, 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 the ultra-low emission zone, is going to play a part this that might, might sound like a random question i was gonna say is, do, you, do i sense a small rant you well it is such a controversial issue on the edge of london and this seat is is right in the way of that isn't it well i certainly think that that's how the conservatives will fight it will fight the election and they'll fight the um the, the they're, they're they're clearly against this the expansion of this program which is a, a sadiq khan uh, sort of key project mm. uh and it's it, it'll be a interesting in and of itself in in Uxbridge, but it'll also point a long way to what happens in the mayor elections next year, which, you know, 
outer outer boroughs of London uh, will be fertile ground for conservatives to try to um, you know go in on this issue. Uh, it, you know, it, Uxbridge is interesting in so many ways, but it's it's such a different contest just from two weeks, you know, two to three weeks ago. It's it's entirely changed. Uh, when you remove Boris Johnson from the picture. Yeah, a fortnight's a long time in politics. Um, of course, another issue that faces the Prime Minister in the next three weeks, Stephen mentioned, are the strikes. You've got five days of junior doctor strikes starting on the 13th of July. It's the longest single walkout in NHS history. Where is public opinion on that? So what we see in, in polls is that, you know, we've seen strikes across the public sector in the last six to six months to a year but where that where where there is public support and it's holding up is is when it comes to pay for healthcare workers and, and nhs workers and we could probably draw links to you know what happened in the pandemic and and everyone feeling as though um you know the nhs staff deserved uh to be rewarded for their efforts during the pandemic and that hasn't happened in the pay settlements and so we are seeing strong support even as it's having a knock-on effect on waiting lists and, and patient experiences. Nevertheless, you know, junior doctors have public backing, according to polls. This is, to be honest, this is a d- disaster for the for Rishi Sudak. You know, and if you think back to last Friday and he's announcing his long-term plan to fix NHS staff numbers, he stood there behind the podium and called it the most significant thing he's going to do as prime minister. And then one week on, or less than a week on, we're going to be talking about strikes again. It's Everyone's going to be looking at the 75th anniversary of the NHS. It's it's entirely the wrong narrative for the government. And, and there's another aspect to this, you know, on Friday, even on Friday, within hours of announcing it, or, or even as he was announcing it, there was this very public spat going on between uh, Sunak and the... Uh, climate minister who resigned, Zach Goldsmith. Zach Goldsmith took aim at basically uh, Rishi Sudak's record uh, on the on the environment in government. There were complications. There were there were different political things going on, but nevertheless, it was a huge broadside. And I think it really revealed Sudak's big problem when he when he approaches the NHS and when he approaches the environment. These are these are key pitches to. To, to what he would call central, more central voters. So if you've got the, if you've got the immigration thing, which is more on the sort of red wall slash right wing of the party, he also needs to appeal to the centre, and that's NHS and its environment. And these are things that are not cutting through for him. You know, Goldsmith was very clear that he doesn't see progress on the environment. The NHS plan is completely dropped and from the be, agenda. We're so. going to be talking more about the importance of the environment with Leonora Campbell because she's had a scoop on that shortly. Yeah, so of course the environment's going to be a key issue in that blue wall and some of those Lib Dem facing seats like Somerton and Froome down in the southwest, which you, you mentioned uh, earlier. Now, uh, tomorrow Sunak is up before the uh, Parliamentary Liaison Committee for his uh, uh, thrice, uh, thrice yearly grilling. What do you think is going to come up tomorrow? These hearings are, are very hard to predict in the sense that they're obviously taking their topics from across the range of, of parliamentary inquiry. And it's also different now with Sunak than it was with Boris Johnson. These, you know, Boris Johnson's liaison committee here were sort of box office for their sort of chaos and, and, and not quite knowing what news line was going to drop. Sunak's much more 
uh, I would, you know, a, a different, a very different <laughs> approach to questioning. But, but having said that, he's got a lot, a lot of uh, potentially difficult questions to answer. And so, you know, last week was obviously um, Thames the, water, the problem with Thames, things, yeah. the problem with Thames Water, or potential problems with Thames Water, and whether the government would be forced to come in and and nationalise that. You could see that coming up. He's got the court ruling against his uh, Rwanda um, deportation plan. Mm. That will inevitably come up, I would think, from the Home Office from the from the Home Office side of the questions. There is there are so many issues here where his answers will annoy or please different parts of the party, and that you know that that will either lead to a lot of news lines or he'll do you know what he's quite good at is is to is to find a way of answering the question that sort of you know doesn't inspire doesn't 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 sort of trigger a huge backlash but it also doesn't you know tell us a huge amount of where he's going to go on so we, we may be none the wiser, you're saying, after tomorrow's uh, <laughs> hearing. So those are some of the, the challenges we're talking about. A potential opportunity maybe for the Prime Minister is the visit by the US President Joe Biden that's coming up next week as well. Is this going to be a, a chance to demonstrate the renewed uh, closeness between London and Washington, uh, even though things like, you know, power sharing at Storm still hasn't been resolved since the last time that Joe Biden was in the UK? Yeah, on, on the surface, this looks as though it could be a sort of welcome break uh, from all the, the sort of domestic turmoil, and Rishi Sunak and Joe Biden get on much better, uh, perhaps than 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 Joe, Boris Johnson did. Um, the rela- low bar. Relations relations have improved, but it's but there are risks there. As you you mentioned, uh, power sharing in Northern Ireland, which is a key priority for Joe Biden, but there are other issues here. You know, I was thinking. You were you, you were talking earlier about uh, the new conservatives and they're pushing on on immigration. Now you wouldn't think that there's a direct link there with Biden's visit, but one of the things that uh, uh, the right wing of the Conservative Party are pushing for is to withdraw the gov- the UK from the European Convention on on uh, Human Rights, and that would that was seen as freeing up the UK to pursue this deportation policy. Now the link with with Joe Biden or the potential link with Joe Biden is that the that convention is written in and is a core part of the Good Friday Agreement. And so you can imagine a whole bunch of Tory MPs making their voice heard on this convention while Biden's in town. That's not going to make for a comfortable uh, set of headlines for Rishi Sunak while he's trying to convince Joe Biden that he's looking after the peace process in Northern Ireland. And how influential within the Conservative Party are these new Conservatives? Should we really be taking them seriously? The new Conservatives is 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 a, a new development, <laughs> but <laughs> but but they do represent a wing of the party that and and a and a voice within the party that is causing Rishi Sunak problems and. It's the dynamic of how do you keep the red wall seats while not losing the blue wall seats. And we see this same dynamic playing out in all kinds of different policy areas. Immigration is obviously the the most sort of prominent one, but it's also in house building and planning and economic policy. And and so really, you, when you when you talk about these groups like the, the new conservatives, what you're really talking, what they're really revealing is 
the fact that this Tory party is, is very much a coalition. And Sunak's big challenge between now and a general election is to try to keep that coalition at least sounding unified, even if beneath the surface there are these disparate voices. But the, the, the longer this goes on, the less the less the Conservative Party looks like a single party. And it's obviously very, very difficult to head into an election campaign and campaign on the doorstep when you've got different MPs saying different things. Stuart, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. That's Stuart Biggs, our UK government editor. Now, the situation in France does seem to be a little bit calmer today after six nights of riots following the shooting dead of a teenager by a police officer last week. The events have been closely followed here in the UK. The Culture Secretary, Lizzie Fraser, was actually asked about it this morning and whether there could be a spillover effect in the UK. Of course, I'm worried for the French and for French people. And of course, it's not helpful when there is unrest in countries uh, across the globe that sometimes feeds through into this country. But what I'm saying is that we understand we need to give people positive activities here. We need to support young people and we need to help them not go down that path, which is why we're continuing to announce funds to support young people. So that's Lucy Fraser speaking a little bit earlier. She was speaking actually as the government was announcing £3 million in funding for youth organisations to help reduce antisocial behaviour over the summer, which is how the conversation uh, turned to France. It's, I mean, it's a difficult comparison to make. And I think that, you know, Lucy Fraser is trying to make the point that things are quite different in France. And that bears out not only in the statistics, but also, you know, things like youth unemployment is higher in France than it is in the UK. Just looking at the latest OECD numbers, talking about around 18% youth unemployment in France, it's around 13% in the UK. And, you know, they're not really comparable situations. And I think the challenges are quite different and certainly the public money that's gone into areas where which have been affected um, by this rioting in France um, over the, the past couple of years. I mean, you're talking about abs- ma- ma- billions, many billions of euros being spent uh, over the past decades uh, in funding there. And, you know, the, it's it's not really a great comparison to make, um, but interesting to hear the Culture Secretary, I suppose, make allusions to the fact that they, they are watching it closely and, and, and being worried of any effect that could could happen here. I have seen various complaints on Twitter that the rioting in France has been overblown in the UK media to try to make it look as if, you know, we're not the only country that has chaos and strikes. And do, do you think that's mm. right? 45,000 police deployed. I mean, that's that's not made up, is it? That sounds like a lot of police to me. Yeah, but like in context as well, you have to think about, you know, first of all, there, you know, for example, I was in Paris at the weekend no sign of anything in central Paris, people going around living their, their lives as normal. Of course, that's just one place in a very large country. Uh, yes, very much a significant police presence, but significant police presences are not unusual in, in France over many events over the past few years. And of course, there's been rioting like this before over, over similar instances. If you think back to 2005, you know, absolutely massive protests, which followed the death of two other young people who were being chased by police at the time uh, into an electricity substation as well. I suppose the response is what's interesting to watch um, but as I say, the difficulty of making comparisons there, I, I would be very cautious about trying to draw any comparisons between what's happening in the UK and here. Well, indeed, we will continue to watch it. But let's come back to matters domestic, because as mortgage rates ratchet up, the pressure's mounting on the government to increase the housing supply. To do that, Bloomberg understands that the Prime Minister's team is looking to scrap an EU-era water law to build more houses. Well, joining us now is one of the journalists behind that scoop. It's our UK government reporter, Leonora Campbell. Thanks for being in the studio, Leo. Thanks very much for having me again. So what is this law and how many more houses does the government reckon it could build without it? 
it? So it's quite technical, but it's a, a, a law called the Nutrient Neutrality Law, um, and it prevents house building in areas where it risks polluting rivers and waterways. Um, it stems from a 2018 European Court of Justice ruling, um, and a, a group of developers have um, estimated that it's blocked 120,000 homes from being built since 2018. Now that's something that Natural England uh, disputes, um, but the government is assessing that they could make the argument that they are, they're unblocking house building across the country if they scrap this law. And what's the process f for scrapping it? And presumably there are, there are good reasons not to scrap it. Yeah, so it's fairly complex. Um, there's two separate pieces of legislation they'd need. Currently, um, the levelling up and regeneration bill, which is in front of the House of Lords, um, and then they'd have to introduce a new piece of legislation on it as well. Um, so that makes it fairly complex. Um, and as you say, there are reasons not to scrap it, namely um, that... Uh, lots of campaigners argue that it's in there for a very good reason, but also that it risks getting conflated with lots of issues around sewage um, and could give the Tories an extremely bad name on the environment. Yeah, well, that's interesting, actually. Something we were mentioning, Zach Goldsmith's resignation earlier in the programme as well. You know, he was citing Sunak's apathy over the climate. How important is the environment going to be as an issue going into the next election? Well, look, I think lots of people will have noticed that resignation on Friday um, and also we'll see lots of the current um, issues around Thames Water. Um, I think number 10 at the moment are assessing that house building is more of a political issue for them and something that they're getting more flack over. Um, you've got a group of MPs on uh, more sort of the right side of the party who argue that house building is essential to growth. Um, but then you've got another group of MPs um, in uh, the Conservative Party who are extremely nervous about house building uh, because of uh, opposition in their constituencies. Um, right now, Labour has seen that they can absolutely capitalise on this weakness within the Tory party. Uh, they've introduced, they've uh, pledged to do lots of different things on house building. Um, and so for the Tories, they're seeing this as more of an issue than the environment is, I think, at the moment. But how different is Labour's offering on housing to that of the Tories? It's obviously politically complicated for them as well isn't it? It is complicated I think one of the reasons why the Tories are under particular pressure about this is that very publicly they were forced into a U-turn on house building targets at the end of last year um, when there was opposition from within their own party and they couldn't get uh, this piece of legislation through so they had to back down on house building targets. What Labour's done is, is three uh, crucial things. Number one, they've pledged to reintroduce housing targets. Uh, number two, they've pledged to not be squeamish about building on the green belt. But number three, they've also pledged to reintroduce schemes uh, to help more young people or uh, more first-time buyers onto the housing ladder, such as their right-to-buy scheme. This is something that we're we're going to see the parties trying to lay out kind of clear policies for on both sides. You know, how much of a debate is there going to be within the Tory party? You mentioned there are some of the divisions that exist within the party of, of trying to lay out where they stand on this issue. Is it going to be something that we're going to see come to the fore, do you think, in the months to come? Well, look, I think lots of people within government would accept that in 2019, uh, that manifesto from the Tory party pledged to make the Tories, you know, the party of house building again. Right now, under Rishi Sunak, which is a different prime minister and two prime ministers on, um, that has been quietly dropped uh, because I think uh, the MPs within the party see 
holding on to their seats as much more crucial for them than they do uh, building houses for the next generation. So that's been dropped. Um, this nutrient neutrality law and scrapping it basically provides number 10 with an opportunity to reclaim the narrative on housing and to say to some of their backbench MPs, look, we are trying. We are trying to unblock housing across the country. Um, but if you look that, um, you know, the developers say that it's blocked 120,000 houses since 2018. Uh, it's hardly going to basically get them back up to the 300,000 homes a year that is in their uh, house building targets. Leonora, thank you so much for joining us. That's our UK government reporter, Leonora Campbell. Look, this is, I mean, this is incredibly tricky issue. We've discussed this on the programme before, but, uh, you know, the government chose to ditch the 300,000 target. You could say, well, it was just the target. Does it matter? But of course, that target filtered down to local councils and many councils don't want to build the houses in their area. But given the political the political uh, will from above, uh, they were forced to do that. But of course, now they've sort of been uh, let off the hook on that. But many of them say that, look, that we don't want extra houses uh, in our, our green and precious land. So it is, it's a very difficult issue within the Conservative Party. And I think also for, for the Labour Party as well. Yeah, look, I mean, you have also this drive to try and keep the environmental issues central for parties if they're trying to think big. Of course, that's what Leonora's just saying. You know, at a local level, these things become very difficult. But there is there is a, a kind of a broader narrative, particularly among younger voters, that they want the environment to be central to the next election. and They want to see big promises from parties. Uh, they're going to be able to do things that will make a concrete difference. And that comes to, to all sorts of targets that are necessary. And they're the people that need more houses built so that they can get onto the property ladder the most. Yes, well, lots of older people, of course, are bitterly opposed to it, particularly if they live on the edge of towns or in the countryside. And there's already actually quite a lot of development uh, in these parts of the country. If you get the train around the country, you will see houses are going up uh, in some of these uh, suburban areas. I feel um, we'll be talking about this an awful lot more between now and the next election, but that is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe, give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. Our audio engineer today was Marifal Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.